Mark chapter 14. It's interesting, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we notice that in Bethany, Jesus was adored. Mary poured the ointment on his head and wiped the ointment off his feet with her hair. In the upper room, he was betrayed by Judas. In the garden, he was forsaken by everyone. But in the trials of Christ, he is condemned. We begin reading in verse 53 of Mark 14. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. But inside the house of the high priest, verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. When you look at the trials of Christ, actually there are at least five different trials, maybe even six. Two or three Jewish trials and three different Roman trials. Starting out in the middle of the night, right after he was arrested, John tells us he was taken to the house of Annas. And he used to be high priest and now his son-in-law is high priest. And then they go from his house very early in the morning to the house of Caiaphas. And that's where the story picks up here. They go to the house of Caiaphas, and we're told clearly that he is the high priest in Matthew's gospel. And then quite possibly there is one final Jewish trial, Mark 15 and verse 1. It could be just an extension of the second trial. That's why I'm not sure whether there are two or three, but... They actually come together and make a final verdict and decision on this person called Jesus. And then he's sent to Pilate. And Pilate, confused, not knowing exactly what to do with Jesus, sends him to Herod. Luke is the only one who tells us that he actually went to Herod. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. So those are the three Roman trials. Pilate, Herod, and then Pilate again. But in every one of these trials, Jesus is condemned. You'll notice in verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this man-made temple in three days and will build another, not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Let me just Notice here with you that in this section of Scripture we have some false witnesses. Individuals who are giving their view of the person of Christ and indeed they come up with the wrong conclusion. And I want you also to notice, at least from the Sanhedrin's point of view, they had a predetermined opinion of him before, before the trials even started. Verse 55, the Sanhedrin they were looking for evidence against Jesus, not to see whether he was guilty or not guilty, but so that they would find a cause, find a reason that would uh, uh, allow them to give the verdict of the death sentence, the killing. 
Sanhedrin, that's an interesting group. This is the Jewish Supreme Court. It's modeled after Moses and his counselors, so there are 70 plus one. It's made up of the Sadducees, which is the, uh, the higher elite group, the priestly group. They would be the individuals who would also have a lot of political power, but also financial wealth. And then the Pharisees and the scribes, who were experts in the law. Actually, all of these people were experts in the law, but the Pharisees were the ones who were trying to hold on to the traditions. And these groups didn't get along, except for their unified hatred of Jesus Christ. And that brought them together. Odd bedfellows indeed. But they unified to try to get rid of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're looking for some charge worthy of death to take him to the Romans. Because there are some rules for the Sanhedrin. And one of the rules is they cannot condemn anyone. They used to have that power, uh, but they don't now that Rome has occupied the land. So all they can do is recommend to the local authorities, to the Romans, that someone be killed. And that's what they're trying to do with Jesus. The Sanhedrin, they were supposed to meet only in the hall that was in the temple precincts called the Hall of the Hewed Stone. Any decision they made outside of that hall was invalid. This is their own rule. They could not meet at night. And when they would make a decision, each member had to individually give their verdict, much as we do today in our own court system where they, if they have a jury trial, they'll ask each individual uh, jury member, is this your verdict, is this your verdict, and, and then they have to agree. So they would go from the youngest to the oldest through all 70. And if it was a verdict to kill someone, to condemn someone, they had to wait a whole day. They had to let time elapse, allowing a, a possible change of mind leaning toward mercy instead of judgment. And I simply want you to know that the Sanhedrin broke all of their rules. They were in the wrong building. They were meeting at night, the wrong time. There appears to be no individual verdict from all 70. The high priest steps in and rushes to judgment. And there certainly is no time that has elapsed because they moved the trial right along hoping to get it to the Romans just as quickly as they possibly can. You see, their desire is to silence Jesus. He's been preaching for too long uh, a message that was novel and new, revolutionary. It would topple over their whole system and already has made a dent into their prophets. They decided a long time ago that they needed to get rid of him. But during that last week, they were just convinced they had to kill him right away. And so they were looking for some opportunity. And Judas has already willingly given up Christ. He negotiated with the same group of people for 30 pieces of silver. And now he's given up Christ with a kiss. And Jesus is arrested and bound and on trial the Sanhedrin want to condemn him and kill him. But they have a problem. Their witnesses don't agree. 
Now, according to Deuteronomy 17, you had to have at least two witnesses, and they had to agree. And they couldn't find two people to agree. I don't know how many witnesses they paid off. Tradition tells us they brought in a bunch of witnesses, but a bunch of the, wit uh, of the witnesses who came in said, yeah, I know Jesus. He healed me. He's a great person. I know Jesus. He helped my family. He was kind. And they had to get rid of those testimonies as quickly as possible. Finally, they found two people who said, we heard him say, destroy the temple, and I'll build it up again. Now, they thought he was referring to Herod's temple, but if you go to John chapter 2, what temple was he referring to? His own body. Now, to destroy Herod's temple, to make a threat against Herod's temple, indeed would incur the wrath of Rome as well as the wrath of the Jews. That would be suicidal. But even those who made this claim could not agree. Because they didn't understand the words of Christ. And they certainly didn't, didn't understand who the person of Christ was. And they did everything they could to push him away. Why? They love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. Now we've got the same thing going on today. That is, people look at Jesus Christ and they come up with a wrong decision. Sometimes it's a predetermined opinion that they have of him and they do everything they can to try to find evidence to show that he's not the real son of God because they're hoping he isn't if he is they're in big trouble and because men love darkness rather than light they work very hard at coming up with ways to disprove the Bible and the claims of Jesus Christ but just like these false witnesses, they often misinterpret what Jesus has said. And then they come to false conclusions. There was a Gallup poll done recently. Well, I say recently. It's probably been over 20 years now. But it was an interesting Gallup poll that said 84% of Americans believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm scratching my head and saying, 84%? Well, they may say they believe that, but they sure don't live like it. I don't think 84% of Americans live like Jesus is God the Son. But that's because a lot of people who may not be as aggressive as the Pharisees looking for ways to eliminate Christ have come up with some type of middle ground to believe in Christ but not to embrace him for who he really is. I had a professor once in theology and in uh, one of the times I heard him speak, uh, he described based on some TV shows from the 1960s, some of the prevalent and popular views about Jesus. I found it fascinating, so I jotted it down. He said, some people think Jesus is like Mr. Rogers. Actually, that was a TV show that went beyond the 60s, didn't it? And I'm not sure exactly when it started, but Fred Rogers, by the way, was an ordained minister. And it was a great show for kids. And he was extremely kind, never raised his voice. He told a bunch of great stories that had good morals. And it all took place in a neighborhood called what? Make-believe. And that's Jesus. He's extremely kind. He'll never raise his voice. He tells a bunch of great stories, but you know, 
It's really all make-believe. Do I believe in Jesus? Yes. But here's the Jesus I believe in. Dr. Zimmerman went on to say, there's another group of people who believe that Jesus is kind of like I dream of Jeannie. Remember that show? Uh, Larry Hagman and Barbara Eden were the stars of that show. And she was constantly saying, her mantra was, uh, what is your wish, Master? What do you want me to do? And some people have a Christ or their view of Christ just like that. They're not asking Jesus, what do you want me to do, Master? They're saying that Jesus is asking them, what do you want me to do, Master? Jesus is the genie in the bottle. And he gives you a bunch of wishes, whatever you want. Just ask. And so we're the ones in control, and Jesus is the one who responds to us. And then Dr. Zimmerman finished it off with this analogy. He said, some people view Jesus like that TV game show, Let's Make a Deal. Remember that? With Monty Hall? Now, when I, when I mention this in creative service, no one is going to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I have to explain it to them, and they still won't believe it. But you remember Let's Make a Deal? People came to a TV show dressed in ridiculous costumes, and their goal was to try to negotiate the best deal and give something stupid that they had for what was behind door number two, right? And so Dr. Zimmerman said, you know, a lot of people view Jesus like that. They say, Lord, for 50 Sundays, I'll dress up in a ridiculous costume and go to church. <laughs> and I'll listen to any sermon you throw at me. And I'll even look interested. And I'll do all of this to negotiate for what's behind pearly gate number two. Now, this seems like a stretch and it's kind of comical, but you know, I think he was right on. Some people view Jesus like a kind, non-threatening teacher in the world of make-believe. Others think that Jesus is only there to give them whatever they desire. And others think, you know, I can negotiate. If I do certain things, then Jesus will have to do certain things for me, and I can trade for something that's far better. My friend, that is just as erroneous as the views that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin came up with concerning Jesus Christ. That's not who he is. And you don't get to make a Jesus of your own imagination. It was John Calvin who said, the mind of man is an idol factory because we're constantly reshaping and making God in our own image, or at least the image we desire. And the end is disastrous. Look at verse 60. Frustrated, the high priest Caiaphas you know, he had this all planned and it wasn't working out and people weren't giving the right testimony and he couldn't come up with anything uh, to really convict Jesus of. So it says in verse 6, the high priest stood up before them and he asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? Because Jesus sat there in silence, which probably reminded them of Isaiah 53. Like a lamb before shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Aren't you going to say anything? 
What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? And I I suppose if Jesus would have said something, he might have said, it's laughable. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. You know it doesn't agree, but he said nothing. He remained silent, verse 61, and gave no answer. And again the high priest asked him. Now here it's very interesting that Matthew chapter 26, I think it's verse 62, says that Caiaphas actually decided to put Jesus under oath, or at least reaffirm the fact, you are under oath now. And some scholars believe that's why Jesus finally answered when he'd been quiet up to this point. You're under oath. Tell me under oath. And here's the question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And under oath, The one who cannot lie, verse 62, said, I am. Which is reminiscent of what? The name that Moses heard God give to him at the burning bush. I am that I am. And they didn't miss the significance of that. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now we go from the false witnesses to the true witness. This is a confessional, and it's filled with some amazing things. Are you the Messiah? That's the first question. Are you the Christ? Are you Messias? And he said, I am. I am the anointed one. Now, what an amazing statement that is. In the year 2000, Peter Jennings did an ABC special entitled In Search for Jesus. He interviewed a lot of scholars, most of them very liberal, and came up with a lot of wrong conclusions. He followed that up four years later in April of 2004 with a special entitled Jesus and Paul, the word and the witness. And in that special, he came to this conclusion. He said, scholars debate whether or not Jesus led people to believe that he was the Messiah. In the Bible, he never says directly that he is. (laughs) I'm going, Peter, my friend, have you not read the book? Yeah, it's true that for a long time, Jesus showed an amazing reluctance to use that title for himself. You know why? They would have made him king too soon. His hour had not yet come. Don't tell people who I am. But a few times he did. Remember the woman at the well? John chapter 4. And she came to Jesus and he said, give me water to drink. And she said, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How come you're asking me for water? He said, if you knew who I was, you'd uh, you'd ask me for water. Living water. And she said, well, I perceive you're a prophet. That's pretty impressive. When he said to her, you've got five husbands and the one you have is not your own husband. And she tried to change the subject and went to worship. And she said, I know Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us everything. And Jesus said, the one who is speaking to you is Messiah. I am. And he used the same term. I am. And now at the trial, before the 
Jewish Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, are you Messiah? I am. Wow. The second thing that this title implies is that he is the Son of God. When he said, I am, that was a reference, again, to the statement that uh, Moses heard at the burning bush. It is a reference to the fact that he is God in the flesh. Now, the Messiah was someone that the Jews had been looking for all along. Their expectation was uh, centered on someone who would come like Moses and be a prophet and like David and be a king. This anointed one, Isaiah develops the character of the anointed one. He would be uniquely born. He would be a servant who would suffer. He would be the anointed conqueror. He would be the seed of the woman. He would be the son of man. And he would be the anointed prince. Isaiah and Daniel bring these titles together to form this picture of who the Messiah is And Jesus says, I am that, but even more, I am that I am. And to the Jews in John chapter 8, he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. I was. But he used the term again that reflects back to this statement of deity. So he not only said, I am the anointed Messiah, which really is saying the same thing. The word Messiah means the anointed one. But he said, you will see the Son of Man. So now he was asked, are you the Son of the Blessed One? And he said, I am. I am Messiah. I am God. But I'm also the Son of Man. So you've got the humanity of Christ in this confessional, as well as the deity of Christ. I am the Son of Man, and you'll see the Son of Man sitting. Now these phrases would have reminded these experts in the law of a couple different prophecies. One in Isaiah 52. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. And Jesus said to these people, you will see the Son of Man. It also referred to Psalm 110, which was a clearly messianic psalm. And it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. So now Jesus is taking all of these Old Testament references to the Messiah, to God, to the Son of Man, and he's claiming them in this one brief response to the high priest before all the Jewish leaders. You think this is going to turn out well? (laughs) He's stepping into their trap. No, they're stepping into his. He's in complete control. He knows exactly what he's doing. You will see the Son of Man sitting What does it mean when we say Jesus is sitting at the right hand? It means at least two things. 
He's finished his work. And he is seated. And he is seated at the right hand of the supreme power because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Those experts of the law would have remembered what Daniel the prophet said. This is Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night a vision, and behold, there came in the clouds of heaven one like the Son of Man. He came even to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given to him dominion and power and glory, so that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve his kingdom. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It will never pass away. It will never be destroyed. And Jesus is putting himself right into Daniel's prophecy. I am sitting and I have dominion. And you'll see the Son of Man not just sitting, but coming. That's the last part of verse 62. He will be coming in the clouds of heaven, which is exactly what Daniel 7 said. You'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. You ask me if I'm Messiah? The answer is yes. You ask me if I'm the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed One? The answer is yes. And I am the Son of Man who sits at the right hand, and I am the Son of Man who's coming in power in the clouds of heaven. Which, by the way, is not only confessional, it is cautionary. Because he's warning them that he is their judge soon to come. What do you do when you hear this kind of confession? I'll tell you what you should do. You ought to fall on your knees. And say, I am a sinner, oh God, forgive me. Two of the biggest problems that people have today are these. First of all, we don't believe that Jesus is as great he is. And second of all, we don't believe that we are as bad as he says we are. We don't believe that he is as great as he says he is. We don't believe that we are as bad as he says we are. Because if you believe those two things, that you are a sinner and he is the great Savior, you will fly to Christ for redemption. I love those words that John Newton used that are depicted in that film, Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce. And John Newton is played wonderfully in in that particular Film And he uses that great line, the line that he said on his deathbed just a week or two before he passed away. Here's John Newton, a great preacher who wrote thousands of hymns, had wonderful spiritual insight, preached with power. Yes, his past was wicked, but he had been saved by amazing grace. And this is what he said. There are only two things that I am sure of. Number one, I am a great sinner. Number two, Jesus is a great Savior. And that goes to the two common errors that are so prevalent in our world today. We don't believe we're great sinners, and we don't believe that Jesus is a great Savior. I'm here to tell you the true testimony is this. He is who he said he was. He is Messiah. He is God. He is Son of God and Son of Man. He is sitting with all authority, and he's coming to judge the world. 
but he'll save all of those who put their faith and trust in him. Well, look at the response. Verse 63. The high priest tore his clothes. Instead of repenting and falling on his knees and saying, we've been wrong, you are indeed God's son, he said, you've heard the blasphemy, haven't you? This is blasphemy. And by the way, it is blasphemy if Jesus isn't God the Son. He's not a good teacher. He's just blasphemed. But he is God the Son. So it's not robbery for him to say, I'm equal with God. Because it's true. But the high priest rips his clothes. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to death. Now, maybe they went youngest from oldest. What do you think? Maybe they went through all 70. But it seems like just a rush to judgment here. What do you think? Should he be condemned? You've heard it? Yes, condemned. Boom. And if they had the authority, they would have stoned him right there. But they didn't have the authority to take a life. And by the way, the scripture had already predicted that he wouldn't die by stoning, right? He would die by being pierced and hung on a tree. Verse 65 says, then they began to spit at him. Who, the Roman soldiers? The Sanhedrin. These respectable people. Imagine yourself in Congress. And they're sitting to do judgment to give a verdict on you. And they hear your testimony before Congress and they think, this is ridiculous. You're totally wrong. And then they get up and begin to spit on you and hit you. I mean, these are supposed to be dignified people. This is the Supreme Court of the land. You say, I thought only the Romans did that. No, these are the Jewish leaders. They spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists. They said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Before he ever got to the Roman trial. But we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, when they hurled insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted himself to the one who judges righteously all things. So, do you believe the false witness or do you believe the truth? It's up to you. To build your life upon this one who indeed is God the Son, who loved you so much he died in your place? Or do you reject him like the Sanhedrin? Or do you refashion him like we talked about with the TV shows of the 60s? Or do you fall on your face and say, my Lord and my God. I have enjoyed watching on Netflix the TV show called Crowns, that series about the Queen of England when Elizabeth was young. Have you seen that? Fascinating. There are 10 shows in the first season, and I have to confess, I binge-watched the thing in about four or five days. Well-acted, well-written, just fascinating to learn how Parliament works in England. And I think I've got it right. 
The queen doesn't run the country. Parliament makes the rules. They make the laws. And then they send the laws to the prime minister for his signature. And then the prime minister sends it to the queen for her signature. If she signs it, it becomes a law. If she doesn't sign it, it becomes a law. (laughs) Because she's not running the country. But she's a figurehead. Now, I have a higher uh, opinion of her than just that, but that's how a lot of people treat Jesus, too. Jesus, I've got some plan here, and it's a pretty good plan. I'm going to send it to you for your signature. I'd like your approval. And if you sign it, great. And if you don't sign it, it doesn't make any difference because I'm going to do it anyhow. And he's not your Lord. And that's a scary position to be in. Frightening. Because you either believe in him as your Lord, he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And when he is your Lord, there is such beauty and peace and joy that can be yours. So what do the trials do for us? The trials show us how men hate Christ, but also the trials reveal who Christ really is. We see human depravity, but we see a revelation of Christ being God, deity. And the way you respond makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that gives us light. Thank you for your word that is true. And Lord, as we've come to worship you this morning, I know there are many people here today who love you, who are basing their lives upon you. Their lives aren't perfect. No Christian lives a perfect life, but they do genuinely love you, and they do genuinely acknowledge you as Lord and Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, and they desire to follow you. I pray that you'll bless them. Jesus, Messiah. Be their leader, be their prophet, be their king. But Lord, some here who have, there are some here who have never bowed the knee to Christ. They know who they are. Or perhaps they don't know. But you desire to let them know today that their life is a sham and they live somewhere in the middle between hating Christ and loving Christ. They've fashioned a Christ of their own making. And then there are some, maybe, Lord, who are here today who know they've never trusted Christ. Lord, I pray, speak to them of your mercy and of your grace and of your truth so that in believing, they might have life that never ends. And take us from this place today so that we might live our lives in such a way that the whole world will know who you are. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen.